It is true, it is absolutely true, that Judaism does not require us to believe impossible things. But throughout the Jewish story, leaders and visionaries have reoriented the standard sense of the possible. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 71, Lewis Carroll, Norton Juster, and the Limits of the Possible. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. It is a famous line from children's literature, from Lewis Carroll. Alice steps through the looking glass and encounters a chess piece, the White Queen, who, true to the mirrored world in which she dwells, approaches everything through a reversal of temporality and logic. At one moment, when the Queen says something that seems patently ridiculous, Alice replies that what she is hearing is literally unbelievable. Quote, I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, the Queen said in a pitying tone? Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. End quote. Believing the impossible for the Queen is merely a matter of training our minds to do so. Our very capacity for belief, according to this approach, can be trained to deny logic. This quote from Lewis Carroll is one to which Rabbi Jonathan Sachs often referred, because the quote embodied an approach that he rejected in his own arguments for the reconciliation of faith and reason. As Rabbi Sachs once wrote, quote, To believe in God, faith, and the importance of religious practice does not involve an abdication of the intellect, a silencing of critical faculties, or believing in six impossible things before breakfast, end quote. Rabbi Sachs is of course correct, but nevertheless I believe that Jewish history from its very beginning inspires us to engage in understanding anew what the limits of the possible actually are. Following its description of the territory of the tribe of Judah, including the bequeathing of Hebron to Caleb, the book of Joshua turns to the tribe that, for much of the first temple period, will serve as the other most important, powerful, and influential one in Israel, Joseph. Joseph is an enormous tribe and, through the blessings of Jacob, has been divided into two separate ones, Ephraim and Manasseh. But unlike Judah, the children of Joseph are unsatisfied with their portion in the Holy Land. Chapter 17, verse 14. And the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, when I am a great people, since the Lord has blessed me so much? So they complain. But as Rabbi Yigal Ariel has noted, their question is phrased in an unfair fashion. For when one looks at the map, one realizes that Ephraim and Menashe have been given an utterly enormous amount of land. And that is aside from another prominent portion for half of Menashe on the other side of the Jordan. But Joshua understands what they are really saying, that part of the territory given to them is forest, which, the Josephites are assuming, is utterly unamenable to farming, to the necessary Israelite agricultural cultivation. Joshua's response, however, is unsympathetic to their complaints. Thus he says in the very next verse, And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then go up to the forest country and cut down a space for thyself there, in the land of the Prezi and of the Rephaim if Mount Ephraim is too narrow for thee. Joshua, in other words, is informing them that what they need is an adjustment of attitude, not of territorial boundaries. Trees can be cleared. Forests can become farms. Lands once thought unworthy of cultivation can suddenly become phenomenally fruitful. 
To this, the Josephites respond, not with agreement, but with another complaint. Verse 16, And the children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us. And all the Canaani that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Beit Sha'an and its hamlets, and they who are of the Amek Israel. Their issues, in other words, are not only agricultural. The enemies they face in their territory are technologically superior, equipped with chariots. The children of Joseph, in other words, see only challenges and not opportunities. Or to put it another way, they believe that true settling, conquest, and cultivation of their land is impossible. It is a small, succinct series of verses, and yet so much is going on in the undercurrent of the conversation, theologically and politically. Joshua is himself a Josephite, an Ephraimite. He is speaking to his own brethren, but he has given them their territory through the guidance of God. And as a descendant of Joseph, Joshua knows the legacy of his ancestor. The figure of Joseph stands out as one who counters every challenge with success. He is sold into slavery, bought by Potiphar in Egypt, and is soon running Potiphar's household. Framed by Potiphar's wife, he impresses his fellow prisoners in jail, which sets the stage for his rise to power after he also impresses Pharaoh with his interpretive prowess and his political perspective. Joseph is known as the great dreamer of Genesis, whose visions of the future are fulfilled when, as vizier of Egypt, he saves his own family and civilization from starvation. To read of Joseph, whose dreams are rejected with scorn by his brethren, but whose dreams are ultimately resplendently reified, is to think of an amazing passage in Andrew Roberts' biography of Churchill, describing how when Churchill was 16 and discussing his future with his friend, Churchill said, quote, I have an idea of where I will be. I have dreams about it. Where is that? Well, I can see vast changes coming over a now peaceful world, great upheavals, terrible struggles, Wars such as one cannot imagine. And I tell you, London will be in danger. London will be attacked, and I shall be very prominent in the defense of London. How can you talk like that? We are forever safe from invasion since the days of Napoleon. I see further ahead than you do. I see into the future. This country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion. By what means, I do not know. But I tell you, I shall be in command of the defenses of London, and I shall save London and England from disaster. And Churchill added, according to Roberts, dreams of the future are blurred, but the main objective is clear. I repeat, London will be in danger and in the high position I shall occupy. It will fall to me to save the capital, to save the empire. So Roberts reports, a striking story of a dream fulfilled. But long before Churchill, that is the tale of Joseph. What this means is that in rejecting the territory given to them, in seeing success in their land as an impossibility, in seeing only problems, the children of Joseph and the book of Joshua are also, at least for the moment, rejecting their patrimony, their legacy of achieving what others thought could not be achieved. Thus, Joshua, the descendant of Joseph who leads Israel, encourages his fellow Josephites to rediscover who they truly are, and he responds in a matter-of-fact way that, in its seeming lack of rhetorical flourish, has a profound power all its own. Joshua has heard from his fellow children of Joseph, and now he responds like a son of Joseph. Just get it done, he essentially says. Try not to think of problems, but of solutions. Turn challenges into opportunities. Here are his exact words, verse 17. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people and hast great power. Thou shalt not have one lot only. 
but the mountain shall be thine, for it is a forest, and thou shalt cut it down, and its terminations shall be thine. For thou shalt drive out the Canaani, though they have iron chariots, and though they are so strong. That's what Joshua says. You, he is saying, you are a great tribe. You are the sons of Joseph. Yes, you face challenges, but you can innovate and find a way. Innovate in battle and innovate in agriculture. Rightly understood, the passage provides a parallel millennia ago to what Dan Sinor and Saul Singer have called the startup nation that is the state of Israel today. As they describe in their book, the challenges Israelis faced militarily forced them to innovate. And this culture of innovation was also applied in a variety of other spheres of life. Thus does this small exchange with the sons of Joseph tell us something important about what is possible and what is impossible. It is true, it is absolutely true, that Judaism does not require us to believe impossible things. But throughout the Jewish story, leaders and visionaries have reoriented the standard sense of the possible, reminding us that from Joseph to Joshua to today, with the help and guidance of God and a discovery of untapped reservoirs of strength and creativity within oneself, challenges can be overcome in heretofore unforeseen ways. We mentioned previously one of Menachem Begin's memories from his time in Soviet prison. In another remarkable scene, Begin recounts how he was told by his interrogator that the notion that Zionism could achieve its aims was incoherent, impossible. Begin writes, quote, During those long nights of interrogation, the young officer told me, Zionism in all its forms is a farce and a deception, a puppet show. It's not true that you aim to set up a Jewish state in Palestine or that you intend to bring millions of Jews there. Both these aims are utterly impracticable, and the Zionist leaders are perfectly well aware of it. This talk of a state conceals the true purpose of Zionism, which is to divert the Jewish youth from the ranks of the revolution in Europe and put them at the disposal of British imperialism in the Middle East. That's the kernel of Zionism. All the rest is an artificial shell, deliberately made to deceive. As for you, Menachem Volfovich, either you know the truth and are one of the deliberate deceivers serving Great Britain and the international bourgeoisie, or you're one of the dupes helping to divert the masses from their duty of fighting here, yes, here, against exploitation. In either case, your guilt is heavy indeed. So the interrogator said to Bacon, and Bacon continues, quote, I tried to show the error of his contentions, to explain that the Jewish urge to return to Eretz Israel was very deep and very real. How could it be a mere camouflage if it had been maintained by Jews for almost 2,000 years, from generation to generation, going back centuries before capitalism and socialism had been dreamt of? How could Zionism be nothing but a farce when its foundations lay in the spiritual connection between the Jew and Eretz Israel and had expressed itself in the prayers and individual self-sacrifice of millions? In our own times, had not thousands given up wealth and comfort, university studies, brilliant careers, in order to become common laborers in Eretz Israel? And yet, none of this swayed the Soviet interrogator. Millions of Jews, scattered for millennia, suddenly returned to the Holy Land? A devastating exile of so many years be undone? Impossible. Impracticable. End quote. And yet, of course, Begin understood that it was not impossible. It was merely the interrogator's understanding of what possibility actually is that had missed the mark. Begin describes how he suddenly, in Soviet prison, along with other prisoners, were asked to wake up and get ready to leave. The Soviet Union was at war with Germany, and they were being sent to fight. He and his fellow Jews prepared to depart. He writes, quote, When the gates of the prison were opened, 
and the car slid out into the deserted street, somebody whispered, this is the beginning of the journey to Eretz Israel. And Begin continues, impracticable faith, maybe. Yet faith is perhaps stronger than reality. Faith itself creates reality. End quote. And though Begin certainly did not intend it, this passage, which begins his memoir, The Revolt, reminded me of the conclusion of the wonderful children's book, The Phantom Tollbooth, a work which, as many note, has its own parallels to the Alice of Lewis Carroll. In the book, which we've previously discussed, a boy named Milo goes on a glorious quest. The kings who send him off on his mission, known as Azaz the Unabridged, ruler of Dictionopolis, the land of words, and the Mathemagician, ruler of Digitopolis, the land of numbers, each inform Milo that there is something about his quest that he, Milo, does not know, cannot know, something which they can only tell Milo upon his return. Toward the book's conclusion, when Milo returns in triumph with his comrades, Tak the Watchdog, and the hilarious creature known as the Humbug, along with the rescued princesses Rhyme and Reason, the taboo subject is finally addressed. Quote, As the cheering continued, Rhyme leaned forward and touched Milo gently on the shoulder. They're cheering for you, she said with a smile. But I could never have done it, he objected, without everyone else's help. That may be true, said Reason gravely, but you had the courage to try. What you can do is often simply a matter of what you will do. That's why, said Azaz, there was one very important thing about your quest that we couldn't discuss until you returned. I remember, said Milo eagerly. Tell me now. It was impossible, said the king, looking at the mathemagician. Completely impossible, said the mathemagician, looking at the king. Do you mean, said the bug, who suddenly felt a bit faint? Yes, indeed, they repeated together. But if we told you then, you might not have gone. And, as you've discovered, so many things are possible, just as long as you don't know they're impossible. End quote. More than any passage in Lewis Carroll's Alice, it is these words of Norton Juster that capture Jewish history. From the age of Abraham until today, much that was thought to be impossible has been revealed to be very much the opposite. And to have faith in the Jewish future is to believe that much more will be revealed to be wondrously possible in the years to come. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.